It is people of privilege in countries in North America and America. You know, people that that's the vast majority of the, the big consumers, you know, in Asia as well. But we are actually consuming at a higher rate than most of the world. So we're going to countries overseas. We are robbing them of their resources. So raw materials, cotton, bamboo, whatever. And we're getting it at a really low price. So that's that's not a great thing for their economy. We're robbing them of their labor force. You know, if, if half of, if 80% of like a town is employed by a factory, but that factory isn't paying a livable wage, that's not good for anyone, you know? And then the product comes to us, we consume it rapidly because, oh, I need a shirt because I'm going out and I need, I need a new shirt. So I'm gonna buy this shirt and then I'm gonna wear it probably twice and then I don't want it anymore. So then we say, oh, we'll give it to charity. So we put it in a bag, we dump it on a charity. And one thing we know for sure is that most charities are only selling 10% of the donations they receive, 10%. So then if your shirt doesn't get rebought at the charity, then the charity puts it in a big bag and sends it to a country like Rwanda, who coincidentally doesn't want it. Rwanda tried to put in sanctions from U.S. charitable donations of clothing because they have a real problem with how much they're receiving. It, it does become trash at some point. And on top of that, it ruins the local economy there. So people that are makers in Rwanda can't sell their goods for a fair price because people are getting, oh, this T-shirt came from America and I'm paying 10 cents for it. That was Aja Barber. And you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 181. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. I can't wait to introduce you to today's guest and to dig into our conversation about sustainable and ethical fashion. But before we get to that, I would love to say a big thank you to the 400 plus people that are in our Patreon community. It's their contributions of $1 or more per episode that literally make this entire show possible. As you know by now, I'm sure this is a 100% listener supported show with no ads or sponsors, which means that these conversations are financially supported by awesome regular people just like you. You can join us and learn more about all the fun bonuses that you get as a community member over at patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. Your financial support is what will allow me to keep making three new episodes per month, and it pays everyone involved in creating the show. That includes me, as well as my sound engineer, Adam Day, and every single one of my guests. Now that our community has met that funding goal that makes it possible for me to pay each and every guest, it means that the folks whose stories you love are indeed getting paid for the time that they spend talking with and teaching us. And here at Real Talk Radio, higher rates are always paid to our guests of color, as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities. Our current funding goal, which I'm hoping to meet before the end of the year, will allow me to have full transcripts made of all future podcast episodes. It's a super important step in making the show more inclusive, as having written transcripts means that these conversations can be enjoyed by folks regardless of whether or not they consume audio content. So to learn more about that funding goal and to join the community to help us reach it, just head on over to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Aja Barber. 
Aja is a writer, stylist, and consultant based in London. Her work centers around fashion and all its intersections, such as feminism, race, colonialism, sustainability, and ethics. In this episode, Aja goes into detail about why fashion is best when it's sustainable and inclusive. What does it mean to be sustainable? What does it mean to be inclusive? What is slow fashion? What is ethical fashion? Aja breaks it all down for us, sharing how and why she ditched fast fashion herself and providing tons of tips and resources for us to do the same. As you might know, if you follow me on Instagram, I'm deep in the process of rethinking my own style and building what is hopefully a sustainable capsule wardrobe from scratch, which has been daunting and fun both. Uh, But being a paying member of Aja's Patreon community myself has helped enormously. Um, Seriously, I learned something from her almost every single day. (laughs) Her community's great. And this conversation with her felt like the ultimate gift on top of all of that. So I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. All of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at realtalkradiopodcast.com. All right, we are rolling. Aja, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Drop me into your real life. How did you spend the first, I don't know, hour or two of your day today? Okay, well, it varies. That's the fun part of like, being an internet person, writer, stylist, is that there's a lot of different moving parts to what it is that I do. But today I've spent it frantically getting my newsletter out because I um, I write a newsletter every month and it's a part of my Patreon subscription. And every month it's, it's the longest thing I write during the month and I do a lot of writing, but the newsletter is normally anywhere from 3,000 to 5,000 words. And there's a lot of hyperlinks that go into it. And it's just a jam-packed email of information where I sort of write about the things I'm doing and seeing. And I link to a lot of different articles. So the newsletter is a, is a huge amount of energy for me. But um, it was a little bit, I try and get it out the first week of the month. And today is the eighth. So I'm one day late. So I was feeling like, Oh, I've really got to get it out. But the reason why it took so long is because I just went to last month, I attended Premier Vision, which is the biggest fabric trade show in the world. And I had so much information to go through about sustainability and sustainable fabrics and fabric technology that I found myself really, um, just running behind because I didn't realize how many notes I had taken. So today was spent proofing my newsletter, adding hyperlinks so people can read up about topics that might interest them, editing, and getting it out. I always am really grateful when people are willing to talk about the amount of time and effort that it takes to like create something that we consume, whether it's a blog post or a newsletter or a video or a podcast. I love, I'm so like interested in the behind the scenes. So I'm glad that you shared a little bit about that. Yeah. And I think People just think for people that have platforms on on Instagram that that's just it. You just post a photo on Instagram. But for me, I actually microblog almost every day on Instagram, Monday through Friday. Not today because I was working on the newsletter. I also do a Patreon post daily as well. And then if I have something else going on, because I do write for um, different outlets and uh, different internet places, then I'm working on that as well. So often I can be working on up to four things a day. (laughs) Yeah, and I will say for folks, um, I, in the last, I think maybe three weeks, joined your Patreon, and it's my favorite one that I'm a part of. So you do incredibly good work. 
Thank you so much. What a compliment, because there's some really good Patreons out there. I really appreciate that. Yeah, I'd love, since we're talking about your work, to kind of maybe set the scene a little bit by doing a quick breakdown of the different aspects of your work, right? Like as a writer, a stylist, a consultant. So you've just touched a little bit on the writing, but will you share an overview of what you write about? Okay. So um, I've always been interested in the fashion industry. As a Black woman, I felt like there wasn't a lot of room for my voice in the industry or in the writing world. So I spent the first years of my working life working in TV, but I was always writing about fashion and always writing about writing blogs and writing things anonymously and whatever. And um, I started writing about race separate of fashion. And I sort of kept the two in completely different compartments, never shall the two meet. And I think the reason I started writing about race was because things are getting pretty real in America. And and I now live in the UK where it's a different conversation, but similarities, of course. But I was writing about the two things separately. And then when I got here, I began to realize that all of the things that I care about on a deeper level, whether it be feminism or fashion or race or privilege, I actually can look at those things and there's a place for them in the conversation surrounding fashion, sustainability and ethics. So when I talk about, I write about fashion, but I write about it from an ethical and holistic standpoint where we're really focusing on how our buying habits affect the rest of the world, why we buy, who's being marketed to, how does feminism play into this? Like, you know, there's, there's no point in anyone buying a t-shirt that says feminist on it if it was made in a sweatshop by a woman who's not being paid a living wage. There's nothing feminist about that. And so these topics that we're all, they're, they're very hot topic items right now. And, you know, fast fashion, mass marketers are also looking to get a piece of that, but they're doing it wrong. If you're, if you're making, you know, 500 garments a minute, and abusing the earth and abusing workers, then you're doing it wrong. And so for me, when I look at the fashion industry as a whole and fashion's carbon footprint, and I look at climate change, I see lines between race and colonialism and feminism and all of these topics that interest us. It, it you know, you can apply it to other areas of your life and certainly why we buy who we buy from, how we choose to dress, that all has a part in all of these conversations. Yeah, and the conversation is so much more powerful not isolating something into a vacuum because it doesn't exist in a vacuum in the real world. Yeah, absolutely not. But we, we kind of separate things. And I think part of that is that fashion has this thing in our society where people treat it like it's some frou-frou frivolous nonsense. But that's not true. You know, the fashion industry one is responsible for 10% of global carbon emissions. So that's a big deal. But also the fashion industry can be wonderful. It, you know, can power small economies in places where people might not have a lot of work. The fashion industry is powered 80% by women, you know, so it is a feminist issue. Um, And I think that when you look at it from a standpoint of all of that, it's it's much more serious than people think it is. And and that's part of the issue is that we've gotten so far away from, you know, caring about the items and how it's made and, you know, treating things like it's disposable, but things aren't disposable and humans aren't either. Mm, yeah. Tell me a bit about your work as a stylist. What does that entail? 
So that is a level on Patreon. And I can only do a few a few of them. When I first started out doing Patreon, I was like, I could do 100 clients a month. No, I spend way too much time with my clients to ever have that many on board. But um, it's a level on Patreon for people that want to change the way that they dress and, you know, really, really want to develop their personal style, but they don't want to do it by buying things that make them feel guilty. You know, so I, I work with people, often plus size people, and I steer them in the direction of small designers, ethical makers, just people that can really give your wardrobe something unique, but something that you feel proud to buy. Because when you support a small business, you really are doing something powerful. Like people say, vote with your dollars, but supporting small businesses is one of the best ways to get there. Um, so basically I, you know, help people develop their personal style, help point them in the right direction and help get people a little bit away from the, uh, cycle of fast fashion and consistently buying, buying, buying without thinking about how these, these buying habits are affecting the rest of the world. Is that a service that you ever offer outside of Patreon, like as a kind of one-off consulting thing? I could do that, but I tend to sort, it, it does sort of take more than one session, but if someone comes to me and says, look, this is all I've got, then yeah, I will totally do that. But, you know, people sign up for two months, three months. I have an ongoing client who's really interesting. She is a nanny to a high profile family and she is one of those people that's never really had a personal style, but now she's having to go to all of these events and she flies all around the world with this, this family that she works for. And so she has me on constantly because she'll message me and be like, I'm going on a ski trip next week. (laughs) Where's the best place that makes, you know, boots that are ethically made. (laughs) So it's really quite fun working with her because I never know what, what's going to be the request. But it's also been very fun to develop her personal style and whatnot. Yeah, I like love this idea, being the on-call person. of. I mean, I would assume also it helps you because maybe you hadn't researched that about, you know, boots before, right? And then like it gives you more knowledge too to be able to then share with other people. Well, what people don't know is that I spend all day, when I'm not talking to people online, I'm looking at brands. When I first met my partner, we went on this road trip and we ended up in Miami. It's a long story, but in Miami, I was going to all these stores and he he looked at me and he goes, oh, you shop a lot. And I went, no, actually, I don't shop. I said, I go into stores and I look at what every store has. I look at the merchandising. I look at the popular colors. I look at what appears to be selling a lot. So I get a bunch of emails daily and I sift through all of them and I enjoy it. Like I've always enjoyed it. And that's the thing about what I do as far as styling, where I used to think that everybody stayed up late at night, like researching on eBay, that vintage Dries von Noten coat that they're in love with to see if it pops up. And it turns out everyone doesn't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I do not do that. Yes, you are correct. So it's one of those things where I, I, you know, if I'm just have a bit of free time and there's nothing to do, I might just take a scroll and check out some new brands on this site, check out a few new brands on that site. I'm constantly learning about fashion, but 
it's what I love to do. So like, it's a true pleasure. But I, I did think for a while, like, you know, I've been shopping on eBay since 2000 for my wardrobe. And I remember I was the first person from my family to shop online. And my mom was like, somebody's going to steal your credit card details. Um, but I've been shopping for clothing on eBay since, since that time. And no one I knew of was doing it. And it was just kind of like, oh yeah, no, of course I, I buy things on eBay, but I realized it kind of made me a little bit weird. And now like everybody's shopping online secondhand, you know, but for me, I've always loved luxury goods and I've always loved items that um, are a bit more money than what I actually have to play with. And so for me, there's nothing more thrilling than getting something that I really want for a lower price. And, you know, if it means that it's used even better because I'm saving something from a landfill. Isn't it funny how sometimes we undervalue the things that come naturally to us? Like you just think, oh, everybody does this or, oh, this isn't necessarily a skill or a talent. And then to realize, oh, wait, that's actually pretty specialized and incredibly useful to other people. Totally, totally. And I mean, if you find something that you enjoy, someone said, I do something on Instagram called question of the week where I ask my readers a question. It can be a very simple one. Like, what are you envious of? And, you know, someone said, I'm envious of people that are experts at the things that they do. And I think my advice to that would be to find the thing that you love and make it that second job. Because for me, browsing clothing is my job now, but it wasn't always. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned, you talked obviously about the stylist work. Um, Is that different from what you do as a consultant? Yeah. No. So styling is completely different as a consultant. Um, uh, Styling is completely different from being a consultant. I consult brands big and small about how to be more ethical and sustainable in their production or how to market you know, and, and be more inclusive in their marketing, you know, so I do, um, consulting. I have a small business level on Patreon for people that have small businesses. And then I also consult a startup. So it's yeah, completely different. The, the personal styling is more of a passion project than anything else, because there's nothing more satisfying for me than when someone truly, truly loves how they look. I've had clients before that have said to me, this is the first time in my life that I've walked into work and people at work have complimented my appearance. Mm. And that feels so powerful. Yeah, I, I've been thinking about this a lot personally. And I, I'm something that we'll, we'll dig into a little bit later. But while we're talking about your work, your career, I'd actually love to dig deeper into a topic that you brought up on Instagram this week that I can yeah. really relate to. You were talking about sort of the pros and cons of solo self-employment. And how that mm-hmm. can sometimes feel pretty lonely. Will you talk about that? Yeah. So I work from home. Um, I live in London. My my husband is English, but I'm American. And uh, I live in South London. And we have a, a beautiful, we live in a beautiful flat. And some days during the winter, I can go for days without seeing another human. Because most of my personal styling is done online. I have a couple of clients that are London-based where I'll take them shopping occasionally, but most of my clients, I I do video chats with them and then I we find things online. And so there's long stretch. I've not seen anyone today because I was working on the newsletter and I kept thinking, I need to leave the house. I need to go do something, but I really need to get this newsletter done. So I've just been working on that and messaging with friends. So I might talk to people through my phone 
But as far as seeing people in human connection, uh, working for yourself and being a person who does a lot of work online can be really isolating at times. Yeah. And I know that you you shared that your winter intention is to make an effort to see friends twice per week. And I kind of laughed to myself when I saw that because it sounds, it almost sounds like a silly thing to be like, I need to make a goal of seeing people, but I have to do the same thing. It sounds trivial, but here's the thing. When we're adults, like adult friendship, I find is challenging because nobody's forcing you to do it. You know, you, you go to school until you're 18 and you're in forced situations where you have forced human interaction. And so once you become an adult, like there's, there's no, there's no reason there's, there's, you know, through school you make friends and sometimes you don't see eye to eye with the person, but you're stuck with them. So you begin to eventually start to sort of get to, you know, a common ground. But as an adult, you don't have anything that's pushing you to do that. And so you have to push yourself. Yeah, I live in Central Oregon now, and when I first moved here, I was pretty unhappy for the first, like, year and a half-ish for sort of exactly the reasons that you're saying. I moved here with my former spouse, and we didn't know anyone else, and, you know, I work from home alone and don't have kids and don't, like, a lot of the ways I think that people, like you said, have that forced interaction, potentially, or those, like, friend-making opportunities, they weren't happening organically, and it was such an interesting thing to have to say, okay, how do how do I do this on purpose? So I'm curious for you and moving to London, what did that look like for you? Well, full disclosure, I actually lived in London before. Um, I came here when I was 20. I'm now 37. And I, my school, my, my university had this great work abroad program, which basically meant you get to go to London, party, and we'll give you you know, GPA points for it. And so I, I figured out that I wanted to work for a clothing label. They had found me an internship. I guarantee you my trip would have been a lot more straight laced, but, um, so they would find you an internship, but I said, no, I'm I'm not going to let you all ruin this amazing opportunity for me. So I found a clothing label that I thought was really cool. And I wrote to them and said, hi, I'm American. I'd like to come and work for you. And they were just weird enough to be like, okay, that sounds great. (laughs) And so I came here at 20. I lived with a family that I met when I was traveling. I was really lucky. Like I talk about different levels of privilege and I'm a black middle-class woman, so I'll never have like white privilege, but I had travel privilege. My dad lived in France for a year when he was in university. And so he brought us traveling. Like we didn't have the, the biggest house or like the nicest clothing, but like I had been to France several times by the time I was 18. And so I met this, this family and they were just really cool and fun. And I thought, Oh, they seem really cool. So I found like this program through my school and then I found a clothing label that would take me. And then I wrote the family and was like, Hey, uh, can I come live with you all? And they said, yes. And so I basically came to London. It was meant to be a semester and I ended up staying like longer than that. And I just loved it. I fell in love with everything about the city, the public transportation, the people, the pubs, you know, the, the grocery stores, you know, I just, I really, really liked it. And so I came back after I graduated school and I worked in television over here, which is, I was a TV producer in my former life. 
And um, I didn't like that very much. Like working in TV over here wasn't wasn't awesome for me. But then I, I went back to the States because I couldn't get that long-term working visa. It's really hard to get. And uh, I ended up being in the States for the next 15 years. And I met my husband completely separate of all of that. And I thought there's no way this is, this is going to work out, but it did. And so now I'm back in London. So London's always been what my husband calls my spiritual home. I have friends here from way back when, but I don't see them that much anymore. But I am very fortunate because I, I think I'm pretty good at making friends. And part of that is also like whenever people are abroad, it's easy to make friends. I think, I think, you know, if you're, if you're willing to put yourself out there, people will be genuinely curious in you. But I'm also really fortunate because with this platform, I have met some incredible people, incredible people. It's been such a privilege and a pleasure. And as far as the sustainability conversation is, going. London is the place to be for it. It really is. There's so many incredible sustainability experts that live here. Some of them live right down the street from me. So I joke that when I came here in 2003, I lived in Hackney and Hackney is very cool and now very expensive. But in 2003, it was the rougher neck of the woods. And now I live in South London, but all a lot of my sustainability friends also live in South London. I joke that like no one can afford Hackney anymore. So we've all now now moved south of the river. But I've got friends down the street who work in sustainability and I don't see enough of them, but they're really, really cool, nice people. I have a friend who works for a really big name designer and she's a sustainability expert there. I have a friend who is, she's a sustainable denim expert. She lives literally two streets over. And even today we're trying to figure out when can we all get together for a drink because it's the same thing. Adult friendships, you got to maintain them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that takes effort. I I love London as well. I lived there for six years when I was younger and have visited a couple times now as an adult most recently for six weeks. Where did past. you live um, when you were younger? So I lived in St. John's Wood. I went to the American school. Mm-hmm. So, yep, I lived there mm-hmm. um, and, and, and loved it. But again, I was young, right? I was there with my family. Um, but I've been a couple times as an adult and uh, agree. It's a wonderful place. And one of the things that strikes me about the story that you just told um, about, you know, getting in touch with the clothing brand and then with that family and, you know, like, can I stay with you? Sort of the power of, like, just ask, right? <laughs> like, what's the worst that can happen? Yeah. These people say no? <laughs> I've, I've, I'm really fortunate, though, like, honestly. But it's it's funny, even the clothing um, even the clothing brand, like I've always been that person that is like, you never know unless you ask. So the brand that I worked for, they're now just, they're now a graphic design firm. They don't make clothing anymore, but I had bought a magazine at London Heathrow when I was a teenager, when I was going actually to France to meet up with the friends I lived with. And I, we, we always would fly to London Heathrow and then we would fly to Barcelona and my dad would rent a car in Spain because it was cheaper to rent a car in Spain before the Euro than it was to rent a car in France. And then we would drive the car to France, (laughs) hang out in France for a week and to go back to Spain and fly home. But I bought a magazine in London Heathrow during our layover and there was an advertisement of the magazine for this label that I ended up working for. And I remember thinking, this looks like a fun label. I love their advertisement. And the two people in 
the advertisement were my friends, Rupert and Abby, who run the label. Like they didn't have a lot of money for models and whatnot. So they would just model their own clothing. And I remember looking at it and going, oh, this looks like a fun place to work. (laughs) And they weren't married at the time. They were originally business partners. Now they're married. They have two young boys um, who are really sweet. And I go to music festivals with them every summer. So even though I don't see them as much as I used to, they're still in my life. Mm, I love that. Something else that I really respect about your work is how clear you are with the boundaries you've placed on like what you are and are not willing to do for free. And the fact that you talk about mm-hmm. that publicly, can you share a bit about what that boundary is? Well, yeah, I think um, what it comes down to is that people do see women, particularly black women, as endless resources, but it is it is a woman thing for sure. People treat women in ways that they would never treat men. You know, oh, can I pick your brain? Like people people say that to women all the time. What that low key means is, will you help me for free? You know, like it, it, you are you are an expert in your field. You're good at what you do, and you get paid to do this. But I'm basically saying, will you help me for free? Mm-hmm. And that's that's just something. But people on the internet also devalue things on the internet if it's available to them. And so one of the things that I'm trying to sort of train my readers to do is to be be better at valuing what you consume. Because this idea that we don't value the things that we consume, it transfers to our clothing. You know, clothing and buying fast fashion, it's consumption at the end of the day. But if you're consuming someone's words and work, but not really paying them for it, you're not valuing that either. And so the more we place value on the things that we consume in our society, the, the better we'll be as people, as consumers, as as humans, I think. And one of the things that Instagram has also trained people to think is that that everything is like free to you. So oh yeah, this this influencer is telling me about this this cool brand of clothing for free. No, actually, they're not telling you about it for free. If you click on that swipe up, actually, you're the one who's being taken for a ride because a lot of those swipe ups, you know, are great, like information for for brands and budgeting. So it's like it's like this. A brand could pay a, a marketing company money to, like, gather information about you or they could just put it on Instagram and have a swipe up and they know that you came from Instagram, you came from this person's stories, which means that you might be a woman between the ages of blah, 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 blah. Brands used to pay for that information. And now we just give it to them because we think that it's for free, but it's, it's not free. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So another thing I, oh, no, sorry. No, no, go ahead, please. Oh, I was just going to say, so I don't actually talk about brands usually on my Instagram unless it is a brand that I'm doing something with and there's very little sponsorship on my Instagram. Um, I wear clothing from small brands. Um, I never wear fast fashion on my grid. If I do, I don't tag it because I'm not trying to encourage anyone to buy fast fashion. But if a small brand that I like wants to send me something, I'll wear it for free, which, you know, that's like a, because for me, when I started out and my platform began to grow, I felt really between a rock and a hard place. I didn't want to promote fast fashion. But at the end of the day, the brands that are fast fashion are the ones that actually have the marketing budgets for influencer marketing. So I was kind of in this place where it was like, 
what am I going to do with this platform? Like if I'm going to do this, I want to get paid because it is a full-time job, but how do I get paid? And so that was where Patreon became a really great thing for me because I basically said to people, I want to continue to talk about these topics, um, but I don't want to have to sell you things. But if enough people sign up over in this space, then I can keep this space free of ads. I don't have to be constantly marketing to you because people don't actually want to be marketed to all the time. It gets tiring. Yeah, that was like everything you just said is exactly the same reasons that I, with this podcast, do Patreon instead of, you know, sponsorships and stuff. So yeah, I completely relate to that. Can you... um, give some clarifying information for folks about what fast fashion is like maybe like a fast fashion 101. Yeah. So it's hard to put into summary, but basically in the last 20 years, our fashion seasons has sped up. So where it used to be for much of this century in the last that brands would have two seasons, fall, um, autumn, winter, spring, summer, Now brands can have 16 seasons or 20 seasons and fast fashion are the big companies that are turning out new merchandise every day in their stores. So your H&Ms, your Zara's, your top shops. And one thing that people don't know is that H&M is an umbrella brand. So they own a bunch of different brands that people have no idea are connected to them. So, and other stories, Arquette, Monkey, Costs. These are all stores that are available in London, so they're not worldwide. But all of these brands are trying to sort of milk sustainability right now, but none of them are sustainable because they're making too much stuff. So a fast fashion brand can make upwards of 500 garments a minute, a minute. So that is, I don't know, I'm really bad at math, but that's millions of garments every single month. And One thing we know for sure is that they're not selling all of those garments and that the way that they're producing them is so reckless that it's hurting and harming people. So one thing we know for sure is that sweatshop labor has been an issue for a long time. And under fast fashion brands, that issue has not just grown, it's been like pouring gasoline on a fire. Um, Speaking of fires, you have people making clothing in factories that are unsafe. So there was a fire, a factory fire in Dhaka where a number of workers were killed because they couldn't get out of the building. There was a factory collapse in Bangladesh. So we're having people that are making clothing for these brands that you and I are buying, but they're not working in safe conditions. They're not getting paid a livable wage. And on top of that, when you think about the resources, these brands are abusing resources. You know, the, the production of cotton in certain regions of the world has caused lakes to dry up. It's caused farmland to be over-harvested in a way where you can't grow anything else. The pesticides, it's hurting the people. And then the factories, the factories are putting runoff into local streams that people drink from and eat from. You know, So we're really, really harming the rest of the world because we're buying at a sped up rate and we're not even wearing clothing in our wardrobe. We, we've gotten in this habit where we, we don't even think about, oh, it's a $5 t-shirt. Oh, it's so cute. I'll buy it. But we're not thinking about where does that fabric come from? If a t-shirt costs $5, there is exploitation in it because someone 
should be making more than $5 to make a t-shirt. If you've ever made a garment before, you know that it's labor intensive to actually like make a garment that looks nice. And so if something costs $5 and it's a finished garment, somebody's been exploited in that line. Mm-hmm. Unless it's like super duper sale, you know, it could be a t-shirt that started at $20 and then they marked it down deeply. Okay, fine. I can get that. But if it starts at $5, there's something very, very wrong with that picture. So fast fashion is pretty much a lot of the big brands that are churning out so many garments and not selling all of them. And then on top of that, so I explain fast fashion like this. It's a colonialist system because when you think about who is consuming, it is people of privilege in countries in North America and America, you know, people that that's the vast majority of the the big consumers, you know, in Asia as well, but we are actually consuming at a higher rate than most of the world. So we're going to um, countries overseas. We are robbing them of their resources. So raw materials, cotton, bamboo, whatever, and we're getting it at a really low price. So that's, that's not a great thing for their economy. We're robbing them of their labor force. You know, if, if half of, if 80% of like a town is employed by a factory, but that factory isn't paying a livable wage, that's not good for anyone, you know, and then the product comes to us, we consume it rapidly because, oh, I need a shirt because I'm going out and I need, I need a new shirt. So I'm going to buy this shirt and then I'm going to wear it probably twice. And then I don't want it anymore. So then we say, oh, we'll give it to charity. So we put it in a bag, we dump it on a charity. And one thing we know for sure is that most charities are only selling 10% of the donations they receive, 10%. So then if your shirt doesn't get rebought at the charity, then the charity puts it in a big bag and sends it to a country like Rwanda, who coincidentally doesn't want it. Rwanda tried to put in sanctions from U.S. charitable donations of clothing because they have a real problem with how much they're receiving. It, it does become trash at some point. And on top of that, it ruins the local economy there. So people that are makers in Rwanda can't sell their goods for a fair price because people are getting, oh, this T-shirt came from America and I'm paying 10 cents for it. So it's ruining their local economy. It's... um not allowing people to make and, and grow things there. And then it does become trash as even they can't do everything with it. So we've created a colonial line where we're taking from one part of the world, bringing it to another, consuming it, and then dumping our trash in another part of the world. And it's a really, really bad thing. And that's the cycle of fast fashion. One of my friends described it like this. She said, it's the equivalent of coming into someone's living room and taking a poo and then getting mad at them because it's great fertilizer, you know, (laughs) at the end of the day, our fast fashion does become quite useless, you know, especially if people don't want it. Yeah. One of the things that I've heard you say a lot is that fashion is best when it's sustainable and inclusive. Can you share more specifically what you mean by that? Yeah. So I don't want to buy a garment ever for short term. Um, there's a brand that's going out of business right now, Forever 21. They were a huge culprit of it. And I do think that they're not going out of business. They filed Chapter 11. But I think that them filing Chapter 11 is a turning point in how people are consuming. I think it's actually a sign of the times. And that actually gives me quite a lot of hope. 
But another part of what I do is talking about how the fashion industry has largely locked out of all locked all sorts of bodies out of the conversation. So, you know, I've been standard size most of my life. I now teeter on plus size. I'm plus in some clothing and straight size and other clothing, but there's certain stores where I'll look in the window and be like, there's nothing for me in that store. Um, but I was standard size much of my life and I ended up becoming friends with a lot of women who were plus size probably about 10 years ago and realizing, oh my God, my friends can't walk into a store and buy their size. And that was a, a realization to me, but that's the thing with privilege. Like Having, you know, skinny privilege is being able to walk into a store and knowing that even if even if you're petite and the trousers are too long, you can still get them taken in. You know, you can still get them them hemmed, but you can't add fabric to to a piece that's just not going to fit you. And so as I was walking through the world as a standard size person, I wasn't realizing that there are a lot of people in our world that cannot dress themselves because Brands don't want to make clothing for them. And I am not going to move forward into an ethical movement that isn't dressing all bodies. I I refuse to. And so part of my ethical movement is you want to call yourself ethical. That's cool. But are you actually being inclusive? Are you actually because everybody wants to sort of benefit from this whole feel good. I'm so ethical this and that. But if you are excluding people and you're sizing, then I think that there's a conversation there about things that you have to do better. And, you know, I get it for small brands because it's really, really hard to make it as a small brand. The clothing brand that I used to work for, as I mentioned, they, um, they no longer make clothing because it was really hard. And, uh, if you're a small brand and you're just starting out, you can't make every size because you don't have the money to, you know, you have to scale your patterns up. You have to, um, You have to know what's going to sell because the last thing you want is to be left with a bunch of merchandise at the end of the season. That's a quick, surefire way to lose your company. And so I get it for small brands, but once a brand is churning like over a million dollars a year in profit, that if you aren't thinking about extending your sizes, then I, I do start to question you because fat phobia is an oppression. And the thing is, people are always like, oh, but I'm petite, but I'm tall. Being petite and tall is an, an oppression. Like mm-hmm. it sucks, you know, but it's it's not it's not an oppression like fat phobia is. You know, my husband is petite. He's shorter than I am, but he can still dress himself, you know. It, my dad is very tall. My dad is 6'4". And yeah, finding trousers for him is sometimes an issue. But it, being a plus-sized person, the world treats you differently than it treats anyone else. And I can attest to that as someone who walks that line, but just in general, like plus size people are more likely to be portrayed as lazy or stupid on TV programs. You know, once you start to realize these things, you, you really do notice it and and programming and whatnot. If a plus size person goes to the doctor and complains about something, they're most likely to be asked by someone within the medical profession. Have you considered losing weight, even if the thing that they're talking about has no tie-ins to their weight? Mm-hmm. You know, plus-size people sometimes have to buy two seats on an airplane. You know, so the world really, really t- 
tends to treat plus size people with a certain amount of disdain. And we've not been talking about that for a long time, but it's high time we do because everybody deserves to dress themselves. Everybody. Yeah. And, you know, that idea that fashion is best when it's inclusive, what you're saying speaks like completely to that. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I, I push brands and I've actually had a lot of success where brands that I love have come to me and said, Hey, I just want to let you know, like you were the reason why we, we've extended our sizes. I really appreciate you taking the time to like explain that to me and whatnot. And I will cheer for those brands. I will write posts about them on Patreon because a lot of my audience is plus size. So like, even if you're trying to send me clothing, if my audience can't, can't benefit from it, then like, I'm not interested. I'm really not, you know, I'm here for the people that have been supporting me. But if you aren't going to dress them, then miss me with that. Yeah. When it comes to quitting fast fashion, I'd love to hear more about your own sort of personal evolution with that. Like, what did it look like in your real life to begin making changes to the clothing that you purchased? Was this like a, you had an awakening or like what, because I think, I guess a context for this question, I think you'd be hard pressed to find someone listening to this who doesn't agree with what you're saying, if that makes it right. Like, of course, like, let's make choices that don't harm people and, you know, all of that. But I can definitely see there also being overwhelmed of like, oh, my God, then like, what do I do? Yep. Yep. It is. There is no clear cut. It's it's hard. And first of all, I will raise my hand and tell you, I still have fast fashion in my wardrobe because the thing is, we all have a certain amount of it. Nobody was really thinking about it for a long time. And even though it gave me a funny feeling in my stomach, I still had limited options for a very long amount of time. So I recognize that quitting it is never an overnight thing unless you're super duper wealthy and standard size and whatever. But fast fashion began to creep me out like six, seven years ago. And I started to sort of shy away from it a bit. Um, and I always tell people this, like, if you're looking to, to change things up, the first thing you should do is just stop buying so much. We buy so much stuff. We don't even think about what we're buying sometimes, you know, and we get rid of a lot of stuff and the process of buying and, and, oh, I've outgrown, you know, this, this doesn't really work for me anymore. That was tiring me out in my own wardrobe. So I slowed that down. Um, the first thing I, I tell people, cause a lot of people I know of are like, I really love shopping. How do I stop? And I say, well, stop going in stores for starters, because the thing about fast fashion stores is that the minute you walk in that store, it's laid out to pressure you to purchase something. Like there's actually a video which I shared on Patreon a long time ago, which sort of walks you through the layout of a store and how they play like sneaky little mind games to try and get you to like buy, you know, it's laid out in a way where it's very easy for you to pick something up and leave the store. There's a really good book about this, which I'm reading called Why We Buy the Science of Shopping. And it really breaks it down for you. So the first thing I tell people if you want to quit fast fashion, stop going in the stores because fast fashion's kind of like sugar. I love sugar. Don't get me wrong. Like I'm a sugar fiend. And when I got to the UK, the first thing I noticed is that there's less sugar in the food over here. And so 
I craved it at first. And then those cravings sort of disappear after enough time. And now when I go back to the States, I'll go to a restaurant that I loved and I'll order a dessert. And when it comes, I'm just like, oh, holy hell, how did I eat this before? It's so sweet. (laughs) So with fast fashion, it's very similar where if you take a month off from buying and say, I'm not going to buy anything from any store for a month, when you go back into those stores, the clothing doesn't look as shiny anymore. But when you're in the cycle of buying, you don't even stop to think about it. You don't stop to think about the quality. You're just kind of like shopping for sport or for fun or because you're happy or because you're sad. So the first thing I tell people is to slow down. The next thing I tell people is I get it. Like it's not a a cut and dry thing. Sometimes it's like, you know, it, it takes time. There's, there's certain elements of ethical and sustainable shopping where one, not everyone's size is included Two, uh, ethical denim is it's, it's pretty limited. It's growing, but for the moment it is pretty limited. So I get it, but I tell people to slow down. And then the next thing is to get off the high street. So the big brands, the H and M's, the Zara's, the top shops, the, you know, the gaps, move away from those brands, start looking at independent designers. Um, I have a list on Patreon of designers that I love and it is kind of like a rabbit trail. Once you start or not a rabbit trail, a breadcrumb trail. Um, once you start looking at like small independent brands, Instagram will like feed you more independent brands because they want you to buy stuff. But you know, just move away from the big guys because they're the worst culprits. Like even Even if you have an independent brand that's not doing anything sustainable, but they make really nice clothing, they're still more ethical than H&M. If H&M's entire store were quote unquote sustainable clothing, it still wouldn't be ethical because of the amount of products they make, because of their high turnover. And so even if you're moving to a smaller maker or brand, and they don't have anything about sustainability or ethics, but they're small. They're still more ethical than the big guy. So it's all about helping people to find small businesses that they like, brands that they like, that sort of thing. And just getting away from the the Goliaths of the industry because the Goliaths of the industry are the ones that are doing the most amount of polluting. Um And they're the ones that have to change the most in order for the fashion industry to be better. And I think, unfortunately, they've been making way too much profit for the last 15 years. And the only way they're going to change is if we, the consumer, take our dollars away. That will be when they change. I always tell people it's like, um, you know, when you go to a hotel and they have that sign by like your towels that say like, please reuse your towel to save the environment. I mean, that's great. But like, can we be honest? It's not about the environment. It's about the hotel's water bill. Like, because if, if they actually care, there I could name 10, 20 different things that hotels could do to be more environmentally sound, you know? So it's one of those things where, you know, they've used the environment as a way to like, oh, let's save on the water. But, you know, it's the same with fast fashion. People, they're not going to change until consumers like, take dollars away. And then they'll be like, Oh, we've stopped making so much stuff for the environment and that will be better. But they, they will only change when people stop buying it. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So I, you mentioned the brand list that you provide for your Instagram, which I have been going through myself. I, as I shared this on Instagram last week, um, kind of realized in all of the downsizing that I have done this year and, um, you know, living in a much smaller space and really not having shopped for Mm -hmm. the last maybe five years, I kind of have no clothing, not literally no clothing, but almost, (laughs) and my body's bigger than it used to be. And I'm just kind of in this place where I have like four things that fit me well. And I realized, oh, actually, (laughs) I I need to have some clothes. And so I was feeling really daunted for such a long time of, you know, making sustainable choices, making ethical ethical choices, making choices Mm -hmm. that are within my budget, you know, trying to put together my personal style. And it just felt like this huge, enormous sort of problem for me. And um, when I shared it, I got, first of all, you know, some great advice from folks, but also I can't even tell you just like, you know, tens of almost like up to a hundred, you know, DMs from people who felt the same way that felt like I would love to think about this stuff more. And I just feel so, so overwhelmed. The first thing I tell people is develop your personal style. That should be at the top of the list because once you know what you like, what you look good in, what you feel good in, then it's easy to find the pieces. But if you don't really know what you're going for and you're just feeling around in the dark, then that's how we end up buying things that are regrettable that we don't end up really loving in the long term. And so I tell people, you will save so much money when you figure out what your personal style is and what makes you happy. Because one thing I do, you know, I know which brands I like. And then I go to eBay and I look for the brands that I like on eBay secondhand and I get them for a fraction of the full retail price. And that makes me quite happy. I find that very fulfilling. There's nothing about that process where I'm, you know, feeling like I'm being a part of waste, basically, because the item already exists. I'm not driving the demand for it. So I really, really want people to develop to develop their personal style because it's so much easier to get dressed when you like what's in your wardrobe. It really is. You can have the best clothing on earth, the most expensive things, but if you're not comfortable in them, then it doesn't matter. Mm, yeah. You know, you can have a you can have a closet full of Gucci, but if it's not something that you feel good in, then what's the point? Oh, yeah. No, I I love that tip and you know what you said about knowing your favorite brands and I guess like your size in that brand and looking on eBay. I am really interested in some of the online like secondhand or like online thrift shopping, right? Basically, and Yeah. I have just in general with online shopping not had great luck with things fitting and then I have to return them. And, you know, one of my friends gave me the tip of, okay, but if you know a brand and you know your size in that brand, then, you know, you're searching specifically for that. And that sounds like such an obvious thing, but it happened for me this summer. I borrowed a pair of jean shorts from a friend that I love them. They fit me perfect. I thought, oh, let me just like look at what, who makes these? Like, what is the style? Mm -hmm. And I was able to find them on, I think it was Poshmark for like $6. You know, like with shipping, yes. it was $11. And I'm like, oh, okay, I see this. So like if I know the size and the brand, it makes it a lot less overwhelming. Is that not like a satisfying win? Like not only are you getting the thing you want, but you got it for $11. Oh my gosh. It was, and I wore them all summer long. Yeah, totally. So, you know, I love the brand Marameco and it's, uh, it's, um, a Finnish brand, Scandinavian, and everyone in my family loves them. My sisters love them. My Grammy loves them. And um, I love hunting for their stuff on eBay because their dresses can be quite costly, talking $300, $400. But you can normally find things from previous seasons. And 
the clothing doesn't really lose its it's they they've never been a trend ch- chaser marmeco and so the clothing really stays at a certain value so even if you buy a dress but you don't end up really truly loving it you can normally sell it for like you know maybe a little less than what you paid but their clothing really retains its value and that's another thing about fast fashion like how much of that are we actually able to like resell? How much of it do people actually want to like buy and wear again? And so I always tell people when you invest in brands, you're getting something that you truly love. But if you change your mind and you pay just a little bit more for it, there's a very good chance that you can, you can resell it and maybe get something that works out better for you. You know, there's all these markets on Instagram, like um, buy, sell, trade, slow fashion, where, you know, people put up their slow fashion items and you buy them from individuals on Instagram. There's an account for buying plus size slow fashion. And so people really get, um, you know, people, people fall into these niches, but it's all about sort of finding what really works for you and, and what makes you happy first, which is why I tell people it's imperative to like develop your personal style and find the stuff that you love because it just, it will make it that much easier because it's a lot to sit through. Fashion can be very overwhelming for people. And I get that. But once you know, right, I like this brand. It looks good on me. I like items from this place. I really like how this person dresses. Then it's just about finding the pieces and you can find those pieces from ethical makers. Yeah. So when it comes to defining your own personal style. Do you have any kind of like go-to introductory questions of like things to ask yourself or, you know, maybe for you personally, what helped you to really understand what your style is? I think I've always kind of had an idea, but I've always, uh, there's always going to be trial and error. So you have to accept that. (laughs) Like there's, there will be things that you will get wrong because I still do it myself. But um, Pinterest, believe it or not, has been awesome for developing your personal style. It can be very overwhelming. So you have to make sure to like follow people that tend to sort of show you things that you want to see, because otherwise you just get like a wind rush of a bunch of stuff. And then you just want to shut your computer and go to sleep. But if you tailor your Pinterest feed so that you're following fashion and style and this and that, it's going to show you things. And then you repin them. You have like, um, a, a board called my style shoes. I like bags. I like, so you start to repin things into these different boards. And in six months, you give yourself maybe 10 minutes a day just to go through and see, see if there's anything you like in six months, you look at your Pinterest boards and it is laid out for you what you love. Mm. And you start to see similarities in the things that your eyes have caught you know, like, oh, I didn't even realize that I'm such a fan of Heather Gray, but that's what I tend to pin a lot of. So that's probably what I should buy. Oh, wow. I didn't know that this brand, Elizabeth Suzanne, was, you know, behind a lot of these images that I pinned. So I actually really like this brand, which means that I should start maybe looking for some of their pieces secondhand or, you know, just saving for one of their pieces to see how it works out. So as much as I joke that Pinterest is a basic bitch site, because it kind of is, I still love it. Like, <laughs> I always say that I'm a basic bitch that's mostly misunderstood. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's a great personal tagline. <laughs> <laughs> People 
people are like, oh, you're so unique. And I'm like, I'm really more basic than you think. I've just misunderstood. Oh my God. That's your, that's your new Twitter bio. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I love Pinterest. And it has been, it has been imperative and and helping me sort of narrow down what I like and for keeping track of what you like too, because you see things online on Instagram and someone's page and then you're like, oh, that's cool. And then you forget about it, you know, but with Pinterest, you could just go there and it's there and you're like, oh, okay. So I like this top by this designer. So maybe I, you know, sort of see if I can afford one of their pieces or maybe I like save their name in an eBay search and see what comes up in a few months, you know, and there's all these amazing fashion resale sites in the U S the real, real is great. Thread up is amazing. Like they, the thing about thread up is that they don't give you much money for your clothing. And I always tell people that it's like pennies on the dollar. So if you're the type of person where you would just bag up everything and just give it to goodwill, then it's fine. But if you're someone who has like some nice labels and you want to make like pretty decent money, don't thread up it. But thread up is really great for shopping. You can get all sorts of designer items for like $50 and under. And when they mark stuff down, they mark it to sell. They're marking it so it will go. And so I do a lot of personal styling stuff through ThreadUp. Um, and they have a good plus size section as well. I mean, it's, it's, I say good. It's good considering the fact that most places have none. But um, I think it's pretty decent. So I've shopped there for some of my clients. But there's all these great secondhand sites that I, I really enjoy and I just enjoy browsing them. And once you sort of get the hang of it, whether it's Poshmark or ThreadUp or Real Real, you, you start to really, you know, look out for the things that you love. And some days you find them and that's very exciting. Yeah, one of the things that I've had to remind myself in as I'm just starting to really get into this space of wanting to build a wardrobe more intentionally and all of the things that we're talking about, I have to remind myself like that it's okay that it's going to take time. It's essentially like learning a new skill and getting to know a new way of shopping and a new way of doing things. And even when you were saying, you know, put stuff on Pinterest for six months and see what comes up. Like, I think it's sometimes a good reminder that this stuff takes time and that it's a process. And hopefully we can find ways to make that process fun. But, you know, if anyone listening is in the same position as me and is, you know, was feeling really overwhelmed, like you can kind of tackle it one thing at a time. Absolutely. And like, I'm a long-term goal sort of girl. Like, let me tell you, I had this dress and I still have it and it doesn't fit me anymore, but it's one of my favorite dresses. It's by the brand Marnie. Marnie is this Italian high-end brand. Their clothing's fairly expensive. The dress itself started out on their runway in 2007, I think, and it was two grand. And I fell in love with it and thought, okay, I can never afford this dress. So just forget about it. But I always kept it in my mind. I'm sort of like a fashion hunter and gatherer. So I've had had it repinned 50 different times on my Pinterest board, whatever. So back in 2012, five years later, the dress pops up on some discount resale site in my size for $300. And that became the dress that I would wear to every wedding that I went to. You know, mm-hmm. I would, it, it was my wedding dress. It was like, and every time I would go, people would say, Ooh, great dress. And I'd be like, Yeah, it was on the runway, but I got it for $300. So it can be a very long-term game, but it's still satisfying. It's even more satisfying because I feel like fast fashion is like a candy bar. You know, you eat it and it feels good at the moment, but it doesn't really feel good when you come down off that sugar high. You feel sluggish and gross. But 
with me, the items in my wardrobe that I've had to wait a very long time to buy have been some of the most satisfying items ever. Like I have this, this sweater that I really love and it's by this designer who's Canadian. I first saw the sweater in Selfridges, which for people that have never been to London, Selfridges is a really cool department store, just beautiful designer clothing. And they have a floor that has tons and tons of designer clothing. Okay. It's by this designer called Daniel Gregory Natale. And he makes these amazing oversized pieces. And so one of the floors at Selfridges has amazing avant-garde high-end designers. And I went in, I think, 2012, and I saw one of these sweaters by Daniel Gregory Natale. And I just thought, oh, that's amazing. But it was 1,200 pounds. And I thought, okay, well, that's amazing. That was nice. I left. So many years later, I've become friends with this designer online. I love what he does. We chat every now and then. And one day I just randomly was like, hey, do you remember you made this sweater? I fell in love with it. And I said, do you have any? I know it's like four seasons later. He was like, I do actually. And I said, oh, great. Can I buy one? And he he was like, absolutely. And he sold it to me for like 75% off. Like it was really very inexpensive because it's old stock and merchandise. So it's like when we're working with seasons, once something's done, it's a lot harder to like sell it for the full price of whatever it was. So I ended up with this beautiful sweater that I fell in love with because I asked, you know, Mm -hmm. because I became friends with this designer. But when you start dressing in a more intentional way, you care about the people behind the clothing. You care about who's making the clothing. You start to sort of, you know, follow their business, follow what they're doing. You might become friends with them online and chat with them. And then that's how you end up with the sweater of your dreams because it's, you know, a sample from four seasons ago. And so I find it to be a very holistic approach. Basically we've, we've gotten away from connecting with our wardrobes and our makers, but really we should be because it's, it's important to actually care about our stuff and to not see things as disposable. Yeah, I love that reminder of thinking about and getting to know and learning about the people behind, you know, the things that you buy or consume. And obviously, we're talking about that through the lens of fashion. But I think about that with anything, right? Like, who are the people and how can we have a more human approach to this? Yeah, I find it very rewarding. I really do. I don't want to consume people's labor thoughtlessly and endlessly and just be in this cycle of repetitive buying. I I don't like that. It doesn't feel good to me. It feels good to me to, to support someone who I feel really excited to support. And it feels good to me to sort of throw my hat behind someone who's like trying to do it right. And just, yeah. And I, I want, I want ultimately for smaller brands to have more success and for people to be more connected to makers. And I want for movements to sort of push the bigger brands to step up their game and be better. That's what I ultimately want. I I don't, you know, necessarily want all the bigger brands to go out of business. Though some of them probably should, if I'm honest. But what I do want is for them to ultimately be better. And unfortunately, what we've learned with unchecked capitalism is that if someone's making money, what incentive do they have to change the plan? Like people, unfortunately, capitalism doesn't really work on morals. You know, so if you have a board of investors and you're churning a profit, 
it's actually really hard to go to them as a CEO and be like, hey, so I know this thing we're doing has been working out and making us all really rich, but we probably need to stop doing it because it's not a good thing. Turns out that that doesn't actually work with fashion brands. So as much as it shouldn't be on us, the consumer, it's on us, the consumer. Mm-hmm. What would you say are some of the biggest myths or misconceptions that people have about sustainable fashion? Like what are our assumptions that are actually wrong? That it's always expensive. Mm-hmm. It's not always expensive. One of the things that I do on Instagram, and I think I'm long overdue to do it. And even though I don't talk about stories because my Instagram, I don't talk about brands normally because my Instagram is largely unmonetized. Um, every now and then I'll go through and I'll take a dress from a high street brand like Zara and be like, here's a Zara dress for 69 pounds. Here's a maker who makes the same exact dress on Etsy for 69 pounds. So for me, I think people have this terrible misconception that buying sustainable and ethical clothing is always so expensive. And it's just, it's a misconception. You know, the the smaller brands aren't always going to charge you for a dress, you know, but if you can afford the the top tier stuff from H&M and a lot of people can, then you can actually afford a lot of ethical brands. There's this beautiful brand called Thought Clothing and they make gorgeous clothing, really very, very thoughtful clothing, but nothing on their site is over a hundred pounds, you know, and people will say, oh, well, that's kind of expensive, but we've devalued what clothing cost and what it should cost, you know, we've, and, and that's been done on purpose by fast fashion, but at the end of the day, like there, there, things should not cost as cheap as, as we've labeled it. That's, that's just not how it's supposed to work, especially if we want to live in an environment where things aren't overproduced and we aren't causing havoc in all sorts of different parts of the world. So the misconception that everything is always so expensive if it's, you know, ethically or sustainably made that that one really bothers me because and I think that that's also been like um that that has been a, a myth that fast fashion has preyed upon. Like, oh, you have to buy from us because we're within your budget. But it's just not true. Like if you're buying things secondhand, often you can get a lot of really nice brands for the same price as what you would pay for a fast fashion thing. I got, I got a Marmeco dress recently on eBay for 20 pounds. Like it was a very expensive dress full price. But when we work in this pattern of trends and chasing trends, it's very easy to devalue things because once the season's over, it's like, Oh, well that's done. What's next, you know, and that clothing becomes very valueless, but we have to sort of get away from that trend machine in our society because it's really not doing anyone any favors. Yeah. I'm curious, so specifically with the brand list that you keep updated um, in your Patreon, mm-hmm. with sort of the understanding that obviously like no brand is perfect, um, what's the criteria that you use when you're deciding like who to recommend or who to recommend to your clients or on that list? Um, Basically... If it's a mid-range brand, they and they're not awful, they get a pass for me. Like I said before, I think as far as fashion being 
a pollutant and bad for the environment, but the worst offenders are the are the big guys. And so for me, it's just a lot of independent brands. But a lot of independent brands have been doing things sustainably all along. They're just not tooting their own horn like they deserve a medal for it. You know, I have a couple of brands like my my friend has a brand called Laura Jean and she's an expert in sustainability. She consults for other brands, but her brand has always been sustainable. And so it's it's almost one of those things where it's like the bigger brands feel like they have to really like put it in shiny lights, but that's because they've been doing things so wrong for so long. And the brands that have been being ethical and thoughtful in their consumption, whether you know they're using recycled material or they're using sustainable fabrics that biodegrade or they're using cotton that's got certified you know there's really there really isn't a a, a one size fits all but there are factories that are you know in places like Bulgaria where people are making a really livable wage and the factory is keeping the town you know everyone's living really okay in that town because that factory is employing a lot of people so it, it's I read individually about the story. I look at where it's made. Sometimes I ask questions of brands, you know, do you know that, or how are you a living wage employer or that sort of thing? I, I ask a lot of questions, but I do a lot of research. But yeah, there's no one size fits all. Like I tell people, if you just want to be a little bit better, just get away from the big brands because the I could make a list of brands and be like, these are the brands I would never buy from. Um, And some of them, you would be surprised, like Urban Outfitters, which owns Free People and Anthropology, people seem to think that like Anthropology is is ethical, but they just, they've never been ethical. And um, they scored really badly recently on a, on a, someone had rated them against different brands based on things in their factory and information provided. And like that whole umbrella just tanked you know target did better than they did on that that thing that i shared and so it's just um it's a lot of research basically and there is no one size fits all but there are people that are doing things really wrong there are people that are doing things better there are people who have always been diligent about not cutting corners and being responsible about fabric use, fabric waste, that sort of thing. It's it's a lot of moving parts and it's a lot of reading. Yeah. Um, will you quickly explain the difference between sustainable and ethical, if there is one? Yeah, sure. So sustainable refers to the environment. Uh, sustainable refers to uh, the production and the materials. So is that cotton grown organically? And also, is that a 100% cotton item? Is it going to biodegrade when it's finally reached the end of its life cycle with you? Will it return to the earth? Ethical refers to people. Are we getting paid a fair wage? Is is the people making that, is it a fair wage? Is it is it a slow brand where they're employing people in their workshop and everyone's treated nicely and paid fairly? Are they working with a really good factory that they know overseas where people are getting paid fairly? So ethical is people, sustainable is environment. Quite frankly, I don't see why we can't have both. And then slow fashion refers to how thoughtfully the, the item is made. Like, oh yeah, we, you know, we only produce 
six pieces per season and then we make X amount of pieces and we do it in this way and that way and that sort of thing. So that's the different terminology. Now, some people, particularly people that are into animal rights, refer to ethical stuff as things that don't harm animals. Um, and I, re- I literally just wrote about this for my newsletter. I feel a little bit of ways about that because people will call like PVC leather the ethical leather option, but PVC should not actually be called ethical because PVC factories are terrible places where a lot of people that work in PVC factories suffer from like lung disease later in life because the chemicals are really harsh and abrasive. And so I think when it comes to people calling things that aren't animal products ethical, sometimes I'm a bit like, yeah, but if there was a human that was harmed, then that's not ethical either. Yeah, it speaks to kind of like you said, the need to keep your eyes open and do research, but also the fact that these are nuanced topics. And a lot of what I'm getting from what you're saying is that sort of everyone and every brand is somewhere on the spectrum of sustainability and ethics. Like it's not a binary necessarily. And the idea of like progress, not perfection. I would say the the bigger brands are not sustainable at all. Like yeah. I would never call H&M sustainable. They, they're they like, we have a conscious collection. I think that's <coughs> bullshit because even if you are making garments out of 100% cotton, this and that, whatever, what about the other 80% of your store? Yeah. You know, it, it, and also like you are literally putting out new items every single day before the old items sell. And then the new items get boxed up and quote unquote donated or whatever Or for a long time H&M was burning its excess stock, you know, that's so basically we're, we're robbing the, the earth of resources so that you can burn it because you've made too much stuff like that's horrific, you know? So no, I would not call H&M ethical. I would not call Zara ethical. I would not call mango ethical. I would not call Topshop ethical. Um, I probably wouldn't call Walmart ethical. I, I think that the bigger the company, the harder it is to like really give them a stamp of ethics. That's really what it comes down to is that when I look at ethics, I often look at size. And if somebody is just making too much stuff, then even if you think about the carbon footprint, so we're not even talking about the manufacturing of the clothing. We're just talking about H&M making 500,000 pieces of a garment and those 500,000 garments filling a fourth of an airplane so that they can be shipped to Europe and then distributed. Like if we look at the, the carbon footprint of how far some of this clothing travels, there's just no way it can be ethical. Yeah, which sort of like going back to your advice of slow down your buying and shop smaller. That seems like a way maybe not to eliminate yes. all problems, but definitely a huge step in the right direction. Absolutely. If you if you buy 50% of your stuff in your wardrobe secondhand this year, I'm applauding you. If you are able to just find a pair of jeans secondhand, that's a great place to start. You know, if you are a person that buys every time you get a paycheck because you love it and you start skipping a few paychecks and instead of buying fashion, you take a friend out to dinner, that's wonderful. And I'm applauding you for that too. So slow down buy some secondhand items. If you pick up a garment and maybe it's not in the best of stores, ask yourself this, will I wear it 40 times? Because there's a statistic 
that if all of us wore every item in our wardrobe 40 times, we wouldn't have a fast fashion problem. Now, I don't know if that, I, I read that a long time ago, so I don't know if it still rings true, but um, every time you pick up an item in a store, if you feel like you really, really can't live without this item, ask yourself, am I really going to wear this 40 times? You know, because we really aren't doing that. And that's something that, that needs to, that needs to happen. So yeah, I would tell people slow down, stop giving all of the big monopolies and corporations, all of your money, start buying more secondhand and uh, develop your personal style, really find something that works for you and, and makes you feel happy. Because when you do, the things that you buy, you're going to wear them until they fall apart. And that to me is so satisfying. I mean, it's sad too, because you're like, you're in love with the item. You just sort of wear it for a little longer. I just <laughs> wish, but um, it's also really satisfying to give your clothing a truly, truly good run. Yeah. Um, the, one of the last sort of terms that I want to ask you about something that I, I don't know if I learned it from you, but it definitely re-entered my you know, consciousness from you is the term greenwashing. Will you share what that is? Yeah, it's uh, when H&M comes out with a conscious collection, but that doesn't really account for like the other 90% of items that they're making. That's greenwashing because they're, they, they use that conscious collection to be like, ooh, we're sustainable, we're sustainable, but you're not. You know, it's, um, you know, H&M owns quite a few of the brands that I mentioned in the beginning of the, the podcast. And like their brand Arquette, Arquette actually does make clothing that has a couple of swing tags with fancy, oh, this wool is certified by blah, blah, blah. That's great. But there's 4,800 H&M stores worldwide, and there's only 18 Arquette stores. So Arquette accounts for 0.1% of the H&M umbrella. But yet when you go to their website, they have like Arquette's name in big letters. Like, ooh, here's our portfolio of brands. Look at all this ethical stuff we're doing. But at the end of the day, the vast majority of what they're doing within their company isn't ethical. So you're just basically using that sort of stuff as good PR while you continue to carry on business as normal. Mm, like almost like a distraction tactic. Absolutely. And like Arquette does have beautiful clothing, but I still won't buy it until H&M does better as a whole. Like I'm not denying that their clothing isn't beautiful. It's gorgeous, but sorry, miss me with that H&M. I would much rather give my money to an independent maker who doesn't need distraction tactics in order to do right. Um, so yeah, greenwashing is when someone claims that something is more ethical than it actually is. And I would say all the big brands are really guilty of doing it. It's just like, oh, but these jeans are made of 100% cotton. It's, it's green. It's like, no, no, that's not how this works. Because other people make jeans out of 100% cotton too, but they don't make 2 million pairs of jeans <laughs> then burn 50,000 of them. Oh my God. Yeah. So, okay, this maybe brings up a, a relevant question. I've been thinking about like how best to hold brands accountable. I mean, and maybe for some of these big ones, the answer is just like put your money elsewhere. But what do you think it looks like in real life if there's a place to sort of advocate for sustainable and inclusive fashion, like within brands that you already like? Is there a place for that? 
Yeah, I think um, asking questions for starters, but yeah, hold your money. One, if you find some place that you like better, you don't feel icky about shopping there, give them your money, let them grow, let them grow a business where people are going to like get paid and prosper. Because there's another thing, like everyone's talking about Forever 21 closing and going like, oh, but the jobs, what about the jobs? And Sorry, but Forever 21 employed 26,400 people. And out of that 26,000, only some 6,000 people were employed full time. So like, you're not even really a good employer because most of your employees are part-time workers and can't make like, you know, full-time hours and don't have benefits and don't have whatever. So the first thing is, Put your money away, give it to someone who's doing things better. And then the second thing is hold brands accountable. When you see something that shows up in your Instagram feed, that's like, Ooh, it's so sustainable. Be like, what makes it sustainable? And like, wait for an answer. And if it, if it sounds like bullshit, it's probably bullshit. You know, like we second guess ourselves as women all the time because that's what society does to women. Like my husband, he is sure of himself about stuff and that is the privilege of being a man in this world but like as women we're always like yeah you know I thought that sounded fishy but I just didn't know but I can tell you when it comes to greenwashing if it sounds fishy it probably is Mm -hmm. it probably is and so ask better brands if a brand is like throwing around the word ethics and whatnot be like why is this ethical why do you think this is ethical like what makes it ethical or even for the bigger branches be like, yeah, but when are you going to make less stuff? Because I can tell you that's actually the answer to these bigger brands becoming quote unquote ethical. And they're really not interested in addressing that. But like, I would tell people, if you want to hold brands accountable, be like, why is there new clothing every single time I go into your store? Like, how is that ethical? How is that amount of turnover good for anyone because you can't possibly be selling all of that clothing. And so basically what you're doing is making things that you will later destroy when nobody buys it. And that's really bad for the earth. Yeah. The last thing um, that I really wanted to ask you about, you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation that, you know, you were writing about fashion, you were writing about race and these different things and kind of keeping them in separate buckets and then realizing, oh, Mm -hmm. actually all this stuff touches, you know, each other. Can you talk a little bit about the ways in which fast fashion intersects with race and maybe colonialism? Yeah, absolutely. So we talked about the colonialist line where most of our resources that go into our fashion come from countries in the global south and countries where people of color live. And then, surprise, the places where we dump our clothing when we're done, we're going to ship it to the poor kids in Africa. That's another thing. You know, we're shipping it to people of color. Another thing we also know is that climate change is going to hit the global south before it hits us, basically. So the people that are the, the most at risk as far as climate change being a terrible factor in their everyday life are the people in the global South. So, you know, people of color, basically, and countries that are manufacturing our clothing. So this cycle is one where we are absolutely screwing our fellow humans. And it's kind of a, just a continuation of like all of our colonialist lines. When we think about the countries that have been the most exploited for food, for gold, for resources, for spices, it's always places in the global South where people of color live. And so 
fashion in a way is just a continuation of that. And we have to break the chain. We have to, we have to do it within our lifetime. And not just that, we have to give people power back because, you know, it's one thing if you're manufacturing overseas and you're paying a fair wage, that's great. But at the end of the day, if it's one of those things where the people who are running the businesses at the top of the food chain are all white and the people who are making the clothing and doing the labor are all people of color, that's not fair at all. Mm-hmm. You know, but that is how it goes. You know, a lot of places in, you know, Europe go to manufacture in India and China and some places in Africa because it's cheaper. Because in Europe, you have to pay people a living wage and benefits. And so you can't get away with any sort of exploitation, but you can do it in quote unquote, those countries. So when we look at the colonial lines, it's something that has been a part of our history as humans. And it's something that we have to break within my lifetime. You know, I, I've been really trying to seek out designers that are in South Asia, for instance, because there's so many and they just don't get even like screen time in Europe and North America because the people that do or the people that go over there to manufacture because they can get their garment made for very cheaply. But I'm trying to buy from people on the ground there that are also designers because you know, if the clothing's being made there, then why shouldn't the people at the top of the food chain be benefiting and distributing the funds as they see fit to people who look like them? Yeah. Um, so I guess that then that makes me want to ask, are there any designers, makers um, who you want to give a shout out to that people should check out? Oh, my goodness. I did not prepare for this, but um, the full list is on my Patreon. But I there's a brand there's a store called Omi Nana that I love and she specializes in brands from South Asia, from Bangladesh, from India. And she is a woman of color who is lifting up designers that look like her, you know, look for businesses run by women of color and, and, and give them a little bit of, of your attention and time and money. Because I, I always explain this to people when you give your money to women, especially women of color, it, goes back into the community like men cisgender men tend to hoard money and that's one thing that we've seen throughout our society but women are more likely to put money back into their families back into their communities because of just how our patriarchal society is set up that's kind of how it goes you know women are the carers and that sort of thing and you know when you support women-run businesses your money is actually going in a lot of different directions. And that's quite a beautiful thing. So I think the first thing is look for businesses run by women. And also, if you look at the board of like a lot of the brands that I've been talking about, look at the board of directors. Those are the really, really rich people who benefit the most. And you will find that it is a shockingly large amount of white males. Yeah. I don't know that that's shocking, but yes, I agree with you. <laughs> I know. It's, it's not shocking, but do that. Next time you're looking at um, a board of directors from a brand that you're not sure if you want to support this brand or not, and it's a big brand, just look at the board of directors and see how that makes you feel. You know, Be like, where are the women? Where are the people of color? And so if something 
at the top is run by white men, how can it possibly be inclusive? How can it possibly be? That doesn't trickle down, you know, like the the board of ASOS is very, very white. And, you know, that people are like, oh, but, you know, they're really good about using models of color. But you know what, if you're not sharing the power at top, then like, don't piss on my leg and tell me it's raining, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's a great saying, by the way. Yeah. It's true. <laughs> oh, my God. That's actually, I think, a great place to start to wrap up. Um, the way that we end these episodes are with uh, a little series of totally random rapid fire questions that, you know, sort of a bunch of different guests answer the same questions. In this case, it's seven. If you are down to answer seven totally random questions. I am in. Let me do a drum roll. Okay. <laughs> okay. What's something that you've been doing lately that's purely for fun and joy? I do a lot of ballet at my table because I can't get to class, but I do, I dance ballet and I dance for joy because I'm old, but I've been dancing for 14 years now and it's purely for fun and for joy. And also because I hate the gym, like I would rather saw off my own arms and go to the gym on any given day. So ballet. <laughs> ballet. Um, when you look ahead through the end of this year, what's one thing that you're personally feeling really excited about? Oh, holidays with my family. I, I, I love living in London, but oh, I miss my family so much some days. So me and my husband are flying home for Christmas. Where's home for you? Virginia. What's your current go-to dance party song lately? Oh, no. Oh, I really should have prepared for this. <laughs> well, I didn't give um, you the question, so it's fine. I, I know. Oh, goodness. There's so many good ones. Like, what? let me think. What do I really like? Um, you know how I say I'm like a, a basic bitch that's mostly misunderstood? Ellie Golding has some good remixes. She picks really cool DJs to remix her songs, so... Quite liking Ellie Goulding, but I also really like this one singer. She's she's kind of new on the scene, but she's so good. Her name's Gavin Turek, and she sings this song called Whitney, and it sounds very like that genre of like eighties Whitney Houston music. And it's all about like getting ready to go out for the night and how she's like feeling like Whitney in her dress. It's a good song. Oh my gosh. I also love Ellie Golding remixes. So I am going to have to check out your other recommendations. So thank you for that. <laughs> um, what's one thing that you wish people were more open and honest about? Like what's a topic that you would love to hear more honest conversations about in the world? Wealth and privilege, mm. because we spend so much time comparing ourselves to other people. But the truth is, people are not honest about wealth and privilege. And in a world where most millennials can't buy a house, and a lot of people are buying houses only because they come from family money, that really sets people up to feel bad about themselves when you're not honest about that stuff. Yeah, I agree. Um, who would you say are some of your teachers right now or people that you're learning from or that you just love following their work? So I try very hard to not like, I, I, I feel like women of color, particularly if we exist on the internet and just do anything, people call us a teacher, whether or not we want to be a teacher. Mm. But I can tell you the people I just really love following. I've been following Rachel Cargill for a while. I would consider her an internet friend. Layla Syed. I love Layla so much. I love Lisa Renee Hole. Um, there's a bunch of different, like, really cool women of color that I interact with. Celine Simon of um, 
of study hall. She's fantastic. I always learn a thing or two from her. I could, I could really go on forever. Um, but there's a lot of cool women in sustainability. My friend, Gina Martin, she's doing excellent work. She changed the law in the UK. It used to be, it sounds ridiculous, but it used to be legal for men to take pictures of women's skirts and she changed the law. So there's a law against upskirting. But yeah, if I just scroll through my Instagram, I can easily find 10 or 15 women, femmes, and non-binary people who just keep my mind going. My friend, Emmy Ito of Little Koto's Closet, she's just wonderful. But yeah, I could go on forever. <laughs> um, I feel like I'm going to change my entire Instagram feed based on this conversation. So thanks for that. <laughs> Some of those folks I'm, I'm already following. Rachel was on the show, I think, last year. But um, yeah, definitely awesome suggestions. Rachel is killing it. Go on, my girl. Go I know, on. right? So. Um, the next question is about books, which, I don't know, one book, two books, three books, whatever you want to share of any genre, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you recommend or reread most often? I know you mentioned that book, Why We Buy, earlier, which I am definitely going to check out. Yeah, I haven't finished that. So I can't give it like my complete, like, you know, um, I can't give it my complete seal of approval, but it's pretty good so far. Lucy by Jamaica uh, Jamaica, what is her last name? Kincaid, I think. I love that book. I read that in college, but I just think it's a really subtle but beautiful coming of age story. Um, hmm. I don't reread books a lot. I used to when I was a kid, but now there's just so much to read that I have a hard time getting through like all the stuff that's sort of pushed in my direction, especially surrounding work that I do. So hold on, let me go look at my bookshelf real quick and see, see what we got here that I could definitely talk about that I've read recently. I also like a lot of books with really good pictures, like because I do fashion and I, you know, so I just read this really sweet book called Legome, the Swedish art of balanced living. And it's a short read, but it makes you feel really good. So that one's quite like a, a nice one. I think as we go into winter, we have to be very gentle on ourselves. And so I tend to sort of treat myself to like short books that make me feel good or teach me a little something, but don't have me feeling too pressured or whatever. Um, let's see. What else have I read recently? Well, I contributed to Gina Martin's book, Be the Change, and it's an activist handbook. And so it basically teaches you about how to like, change the law should you ever want to and things that you should know. And so I guess that would be my third book because I'm in it. Sorry, shameless plug. No, I, I was really inspired by, you know, I, I watched that happen, you know, with the upskirting laws and everything. And so that is a great book recommendation. I feel like the show notes for this episode are going to be <laughs> hugely beneficial for folks. So I am excited for all that. Um, last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners, with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? Think about it before you buy it. Read the label. Read where it's made. Who's making it? Ask yourself, do I really think that someone got paid fairly or treated fairly to make this? And do I really need this in my wardrobe? Does it make me feel so good that it's worth it? And if it is, then go for it. You know, like at the end of the day, we all have to dress ourselves. And I'm not shaming people with less money than me who can't afford to make the same decisions that I do. Like that would be me being a crappy person if I did that. But I think 
when it comes to consumption, we've all just been operating on autopilot for so long. And now it's time to like give our purchases more thoughts because they really do. It affects people. It really does. And I think that as much as we feel like it's hopeless, it's not hopeless. And you are way more powerful than you probably give yourself credit for. Hmm, I love that. What's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks? Um, Instagram.com. But I always tell new people, you know, follow for a little bit and just listen. Because I think one of the things that the internet has done for us is it's given us this idea that we should always just dip our toe in every conversation. Sometimes we don't even know what we're talking about. (laughs) So I always tell people, this is a rule that I apply to myself. When I follow someone new, if I've not had any sort of rapport with them at all, I follow for two weeks and I just read their posts and I check out how they interact with their readers, you know, to sort of get an idea for the vibe of their page. Are they a person that really likes to interact or do they not like to interact or, you know, do they have firm boundaries about how people interact with them? So I always tell people, if you follow someone new, just follow for a little bit and, and, you know, keep it to yourself. And then when you feel like you've gotten a read on that person, then it, you know, it might be okay to dip your toe in, but you learn a lot more if you're not talking, but the internet has kind of like given us all a megaphone and some people just don't really filter it. So, um, Instagram I'm on there. And if you were interested in learning more or finding out more about my work or finding out about more places to shop, you can find me on Patreon slash ajabarber.com. I also write for eco age, which is a really cool sustainable consulting firm, but they're also, they have a website where they publish writing. And yeah, I would say that's it. I'm on Twitter, but I'm, I'm only there every now and then. Uh, I am on Pinterest and I do share like links to my Pinterest sometimes on Patreon. So if you're curious about like Pinterest, because it's really overwhelming and you join Patreon, maybe I'll talk people through like how to curate a Patreon feed so that you can get the stuff that you want to see in a little less of the stuff that you don't need. Yeah, I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Aja, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. It was a really great conversation. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I want to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for the show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. So go say hi. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Jen. Hi, Jen. Hi, Nicole. So we're going to do a fun little round of rapid fire questions if you're ready. Sounds good. Let's do it. What are you totally obsessed with right now? Uh, Right now, I am totally obsessed with pottery. I took two pottery classes in the summer in this beautiful studio that was sort of like an outdoor space. And I got my hands really dirty. And it was just so nice to do something that I was... um, really new at and really bad at and just to explore it and not care if I got good and just really enjoy the process. So I'm really excited about uh, my next class. Isn't it? It's fun sometimes to be a beginner at something. 
Yeah. And there's no pressure. Like there's no way I'm ever going to be monetizing the um, poorly made pieces that I'm working on. So it's fun to just do it for myself and spend time off of my cell phone and connecting with something in the physical world instead of the digital space. Yeah, that's incredibly relatable. I I feel like my brain works in the way of, is this a side hustle? How can I make this into work or whatever? And I'm like, not, no, some things are just for fun. Like you don't have to turn everything into a job. Exactly. What's something that's going really well in your life lately? What are you kicking ass at? I think what's going well is me spending my money on experiences that bring me joy rather than on things. Um, in the past, I felt a lot of pressure to spend my money on houses or furniture or things like that. And lately I've, I've been choosing to spend it on experiences like going to shows that I really want to see. And that has just made things, uh, so much more joyful and gives me a lot to look forward to as opposed to, uh, spending it on material things that I, I don't get that much enjoyment out of. So that's been something that's made my year a lot better. Yeah. I love the energy of having something to anticipate, like to look forward to. Yeah. I always have to have a concert on my schedule or else I get a little bummed out. Hey, I mean, that's good information to know about yourself though, right? Then you can like live with more intention and spend your money in ways that bring you more joy. Exactly. What's the best thing that you have read or watched or listened to lately? Any book or podcast or TV show or whatever recommendations? Oh, I have two. I just finished Margaret Atwood's The Testaments, and that was amazing. A a great follow-up to The Handmaid's Tale. Um, I just love Margaret Atwood and have for a long time. She's a Canadian like me. And I also just finished watching Fleabag, and that show won all the awards for a good reason. It is amazing and so clever. I have heard that from lots of other people about Fleabag, and I have not seen it. So maybe I will check it out. Oh, you should. It's it's especially the second season. And it's the kind of thing that you can watch in like a day or two if you really commit. Okay. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the like binge consumption of media. So I'm, I'm into that. Perfect. What's something that makes you feel loved and cared for? I would say when my partner gives me little tips on the way out the door in the morning while he's still asleep. So he'll still be asleep and he'll tell me like, it's really icy outside as I'm leaving the house. And he doesn't really know if it's icy outside. And, uh, but he just feels like he needs to like, just give me a little encouragement before I go out the door. So, um, I find that is kind of a nice thing to know that someone is thinking about you while they're still, um, sort of bleary eyed and not completely awake. That's such a sweet thing. He is much more uh, caring, compassionate in that way. I, uh, I am less so, but it's nice to have him as a, as a partner like that. Yeah, totally. Last question. What's one topic that you would love to hear more honest conversations about? I would love to hear more conversations about people who are unsure about becoming parents. Mm-hmm. Um, I hear a lot from especially women who really want to have children and know they want to. And I hear about people who know they don't uh, to a lesser degree, but I don't hear a lot from people who are really not sure. And, you know, I think for that kind of a decision, some days you are like 95% sure you want to have kids. And then other days you're like 0% sure that you want to have kids. And I, I would love to hear from some people who navigate 
that choice and that decision because I usually only hear from people who are sort of on either end of the spectrum. Yeah, I think that's often the case with lots of subjects, right? Like not just this topic. I think it's a lot easier to speak on something when you know what your position is. Sometimes conversations about uncertainty don't happen as much just because it's kind of like, what do you talk about? Right. And you're, you're not alone. I mean, I've gotten specifically that topic of people who are kind of on the fence about whether or not to have kids as a like topic suggestion for the podcast. I've gotten that suggestion and request a bunch of times. So you're certainly not the only one thinking about it. And then for me, it's a question of how, you know, where's kind of the conversation to have around that. But um, maybe I will bump that up the list of things to have talked about. Yeah. And the pot, the guest you had a couple of weeks ago talked a bit about it. And I found that was a really great conversation and would love to have it more with the people I'm connecting with. Yeah. Yeah. So you're a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you make a small and powerful reoccurring per episode pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show and paying the guests. Can you share why you decided to support the show with your money? Sure. So I have been listening to your podcast for a long time, uh, long before I started supporting financially. And I decided to do that in 2018 when you were on your long distance hike and you were posting these incredible inspirational Instagram captions and pictures every day. And I just thought if this content was in a store, I would buy it and pay for it. So I should start paying for it. And since then have been receiving your emails and really feeling Uh, happy to be able to support the podcast as well. And I find it's a really great way for me to learn new things about people who are a little bit different than me, but at their core, not really. And and to learn about concepts like uh, intersectionality and equality and to give me this whole new language that I I don't think I would have without listening to the in-depth perspective of other people. So I've really appreciated that and I'm happy to be able to support it. Mm, thank you so much. I I agree. Listening to other people's stories is such a great way to learn. For, I mean, I've learned so much from the guests on this show. And so I feel very grateful for that. And, and for folks like you who see the value in this kind of community supported model, I feel like there's something really lovely about, hey, this is a not huge group of people that, you know, are making these conversations happen. And I don't know that I just think that's a really special thing. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Do you want to share where you live and maybe a social media link or something if people want to say hi? Sure. I live in Ottawa, Canada, and uh, the social media I use the most is probably Instagram. And I am on Instagram as uh, Little Jenny Wren. Uh, it's after a Mother Goose poem that my mother used to read to me all the time. My gosh, that's such a good why I chose this handle. (laughs) Like a tidbit. That's great. (sighs) She's a very picky bird. And I guess I was picky as a child. So my mom (laughs) used to call me Jenny Wren all the time. So that's where that came from. It's adorable. Um, Thanks so much. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want lots of bonus content, plus other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $1 or more per episode. Your support is what allows the show to continue, and I can't wait to get to know you better once you've joined our community. So until then, until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can, and no matter what, we're in this together.